0: we continue our study through this Old Testament book, a book that we often just look past or kind of skim through in our yearly reading if we are doing that, but a book nonetheless that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, Leviticus chapter 3, and if you are able and willing as is our custom, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. This is the Word of the Lord. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. ...and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins... ...and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering... ...which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock... ...male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering... And kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering of the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys, with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar. As a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and lay his hand on its head, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it, as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys of the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you eat neither neither fat nor blood. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, this indeed is your word. And even as we come to a passage like this, and maybe even some of us wonder, What does it have to do with us today? This is your word, and you tell us that your word is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. So, Lord, would you do that, just that, this morning in our hearts. Meet your word with your spirit. Mold us and make us into the men, women, and children that you've called us to be. And point us to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought us peace. And in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You know, we've mentioned before that sometimes these rituals and these sacrifices and these offerings, they may, well, for being honest, seem a little strange to us. We might even ask the question, as I said in the prayer a few moments ago, what possibly could all of these things have to do with us here in the year 2023 could they really apply to life to faith and life today on this side of the cross the answer to that of course is yes and still yet we must admit that we are and we certainly feel and think sometimes that we are so disconnected in some ways historically and culturally from these things that they're hard to understand and While there is that rich and deep continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament, we must admit that there are also some discontinuities. For after all, they were looking forward in anticipation to the coming of the Messiah. And we, on this side, we look back to the completed work and to the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I think... And I do think this, that sometimes even even what we might think of as strange really isn't that strange to us if we can begin to think of those things in terms of our own customs, maybe in terms of our own rituals and in our own day and the things to which those things point. For example, just yesterday... Two young people stood right here in this place and covenanted together to love each other, to honor one another, to honor the Lord in their marriage. And they entered into a covenant together. And by entering into that covenant together, they, they made their relationship official. And in that covenant, they, of course, they pledged their Love to one another, but they also pledged to one another their mutual responsibilities that they have within that particular covenant. And after all that was over, what did everybody do? We left, we gathered together, and we celebrated, and we ate. Because that's what happens after a wedding, isn't it? A party, or a feast, or a meal. It's a celebration and a confirming of the covenant that had just been made. Now, that practice is not unfamiliar to us. That practice is not strange to us. In fact, we we get that. We, We participate in those quite a bit. And neither were those types of practices foreign to those in the ancient Near East. They too would... Share a meal together to do the very same, to confirm and to celebrate that covenant relationship or that covenant partnership. And so we come this morning to the third of these voluntary offerings. The, and this one is called the peace offering or the fellowship offering. And this peace offering functioned in that very same way. To confirm and to celebrate the covenant relationship between God and His people. Peace has come where there was once enmity. And so as we consider this passage together, I want us to do so in in three ways. And and I want to do so in, in a way that is familiar to us by now even as we've done the last few weeks not necessarily spending a whole lot of time on the specifics and what is what is this little ingredient and that ingredient but looking at what the offering teaches us what we learn from it and the one to whom it points and so as we do so I want us to do so in these three ways we're going to look first to peace and fellowship we're going to look at fat and food and then to food and fellowship Most of these things we are very familiar with, right? So let's look first to peace and fellowship. And as our passage begins, we we again get a sense of the freedom and the spontaneity of these particular offerings that we're studying at the beginning of Leviticus. It begins, if this offering is... So this is another one of those offerings, another type of offering that can be given on a voluntary basis in response to God's favor, in response to what God had bestowed upon upon his people. And it's it's interesting, isn't it? As we consider this and as we read through these things, maybe even as you were listening to Leviticus chapter 3 being read, that we may begin to have some questions about these sacrifices that that maybe aren't answered until later in the book or maybe maybe they're not answered at all and we're just kind of left with those questions Um, for example we might have the question of well could they come any time could they come any time to give any of these offerings did they did they have to let the priest know when they were coming Did they have to schedule an appointment with them so that they would be assured that the fire would be ready, the fire would be burning for their sacrifice? Well, this particular question is answered for us. It's not answered here in our text, but we'll learn when we come to chapter 6 of Leviticus that there was always a fire on the altar. In fact... The fire was to burn continuously. We're told, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So think about that for just a moment. It's a continual fire. Where are they? They They're in the tabernacle. And then what, 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 what does Israel begin to do? They begin to wander. And they begin to wander for 40 years. And they take down that tabernacle. They rebuild that tabernacle. When they stop... And the fire continuously burns. Over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it represents something within the life of Israel. The fire represented the power of God and the presence of God in their midst. And that power and that presence for the people of God never extinguishes. It remains. And, and, and also again... It, it, it points us to the freedom that they have to come and to, and to respond to God. If one wanted to bring an offering and praise and, and thanksgiving of God uh, for God having reconciled man to himself and thanks to God for having brought peace and fellowship between God and man, this, this was the offering to give and they could bring it. And I think this is important. I've, I mentioned it last uh, Sunday I'm going to mention it again this morning. I'm sure I'll mention it over and over and over again. I think we tend to think of Israel in the Old Testament that their, that their worship was somehow rote, that there was, it was lack of any affection, lack of any, uh, any spontaneity, but that's just not what we're given here at the first of Leviticus. And I think we ought to learn from that too. Neither is our worship to be devoid of spontaneity, devoid of any affection that's moved in our heart by the truth of the Word of God. And so if they wanted to come and celebrate peace and fellowship with God, then this is the offering that they would bring. And, and there are a lot of similarities between this offering and the burnt offering and, and that actually makes a lot of sense and it makes sense as we think of it in, in, in these several ways. Here in this offering, uh, in both of those offerings, we have the shedding of blood. We have the animal that is to be offered that's free of defect, that is to be one without blemish. We have the leaning into the animal, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that, that that identification with the animal that's being offered, the laying on of hands by the one offering it. And in fact... In some ways, these two um, sacrifices and offerings are so similar that we might ask the question, why even have a separate offering? I mean, they're they're almost the same. So why would we have a separate offering if the guilt offering um, is much like this peace offering? Well, part of that is its emphasis. Part of that is the focus. Part of that is what is being responded to by the people of God. What is it that God has done that the people are responding to? In the burnt offering that we studied a couple of weeks ago, the focus was on that Sorry, substitutionary, sure. the substitutionary sacrifice, that aspect, that, um, that, um, that aspect of, of that sacrifice, the satisfaction of God's righteousness. But here in the peace offering or in the fellowship offering, the focus is a little different. The focus on, is on the peace that is brought between God and man because of the shed blood. So it's, it's not disconnected from it, but, it's, but it is similar, but it's also different. And let's not miss the reality here either. In order, in order for there to be peace between God and man, it still had a cost, It still takes the shedding of blood. That's why we have the shedding of blood in this sacrifice like we did in the burnt offering because there's a cost to bring reconciliation between God or between man and God. And and again, that's why with this offering, we have the same as in the burnt offering, the slaughtering of that animal, the throwing of the blood on the sides of the altar. There is great cost to fellowship with the living God. And as is the case with many of these offerings, these, many of these were done together. In fact, we read just a few moments ago, sometimes the peace offering was actually given on top of the burnt offering. Why? Because the burnt offering served as the foundation for the peace offering. Blood has to be spilt. That's, that's why, too, though while there are similarities here, there are also differences between the two, between the burnt offering and this the peace offering. In the burnt offering, everything was burnt up. Remember that? Everything was burnt up uh, upon the altar. But here, only specific parts of the animal were to be burned on the altar of the fi- uh, on the fire on the altar. And in, and it's the best parts, the choice parts are burned upon the altar. Look at verse 3 with me. If it's from the herd, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. If it's from the flock, verse 9. He shall move the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails. Two kidneys with the fat that's on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And if it's a goat, you can guess what I'm going to read and you say, well why read it? Because we've already read it twice. Bear with me. It's important. The fat covering the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails. Two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Only the choice parts only the best parts of the animal are given to the lord and we get that don't we we get that i'm going to give an illustration in just a moment but i'm also going to add something here that i didn't say in the first service because somebody after the first service asked me and i i decided earlier that i wasn't going to go into this until um till the weeks to come but it may be something that that um I don't know about you, but sometimes if I don't get a question answered in my mind, I can't get it out of there and it just stays. And then really I can't think about something else until I get that question answered. Well, you'll notice at the very end of chapter 3 where it says, it'll be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you either that you eat neither fat nor blood. That really bothered somebody because I didn't cover it in this morning's in the early service because I was saving that for later. But they're like, but I just... You know, it's just that's a question that I need answered. Let me answer that just very quickly, very quickly, and allow me not to answer it fully. Okay, a quick answer, but not a full answer. And then we'll come back to it in in weeks to come. Is this something still that we need to consider? What did God demand from those sacrifices, the best parts, the choice parts, the fat and the blood? Which side of the cross are we on? We are on this side. Brothers and sisters, the fat part of the sacrifice has already been given. It's been given in the Lord Jesus Christ, the finest, the perfect, the lamb without blemish. It's been given already. That's part of why when Peter and Cornelius and, and Acts, that they've got the freedom to eat things. They weren't, that you should not have the freedom to eat. Why? Because Christ has come. The blood has been shed. The finest part, the choice part, the fat part has been given. Okay, so I'll just answer that quickly for now. We'll come back to that in the weeks to come. But now you can move on with me and think a little bit, okay? Um, the best parts here in Leviticus, the best parts of the animal are given to the Lord. And again, we, we get that. We've learned that. The first fruits, right? Right? The first fruits. But we might also ask the question, but doesn't doesn't God get all of it? I mean, doesn't he own all of it? Yes, he owns all of it. But again, let's remember what this this particular sacrifice is pointing to. It's pointing to peace and to fellowship. Peace and fellowship. Let's consider the word peace for just a moment. Uh, and the word here in the Hebrew is related to the Hebrew word shalom. You've probably heard that before. Um, in English, we, we think of peace as the absence of strife. And that's part of it for sure. But, but, but notice in the English, we think of it negatively, not, not, not in the way that it's bad, but negatively, the absence of something rather than the presence of something. So when we think of peace, it's the absence of strife. We've got no strife. I just want a little peace and quiet is what we say. And that's how we think of peace. Certainly that's part of it, but that's not all of it. It's not all of it. In the Hebrew, it's much broader. In the Hebrew, it's much more encompassing because, it, because not only does it not have strife, but there's added to that harmony there's added to that completeness there's added to that wholeness there's added to that prosperity that's shalom not just the absence of negativity but the but you you've got wholeness and completeness and prosperity and how how appropriate is that because that's the reality of Restored fellowship with our God. And this offering points to that reality. And the fact that only parts are burned actually communicates to us that it actually communicates to us God's grace, his kindness, and his goodness to those with whom he is in fellowship What do I mean by that? Well, we ask the question, what about the parts that aren't burnt on the altar? What about those, the rest of it? What of the rest of it? Well, that's not answered here in our particular text, but it is answered in the specifics of chapter seven. The rest of the animal that's not burned upon the altar is divided among the priest and the offerer to then be enjoyed in fellowship and in communion with one another within the people of God. So think about that with me for just a moment. This is a fellowship meal, is what it is. This is a covenant meal, expressing a relationship between the offerer and the Lord, but doesn't just affect the individual offerer and the Lord, but the offerer the Lord and the Lord's people. Now, your, mind, your minds might be going to, well, that sounds a little bit like the Lord's Supper that we, that we celebrate every Sunday. Good. Let your mind go there. That's where it should be going. But before we go there, let's think about fat and food for a moment. Because that actually, not just because we like fat and food, but because that will help inform our thoughts as we, uh, when we get to that part at the end with food and fellowship. Uh, and I've already mentioned, I've already mentioned that these, the best parts, the fat parts, they were burned up on the altar of the Lord. And, and again, as we read through this, we see that familiar refrain, don't we? A pleasing aroma. we see it in verse five, then we see it again in verse 16, a pleasing aroma before the Lord. And in our culture. We often cut the fat parts off of the meat, don't we? We see that as the undesirable part of the meat. We want the center cut. We want the, um, sometimes we want that, that, we want the filet mignon or you deer hunters, you want the tenderloin. You want the back strap. You want that that's not, that doesn't have the fat around it. You want that clean cut of meat. But for ancient Israel, and brothers and sisters, I know, I know the cost of eggs, the cost of meat, and we're going, oh my goodness, it is just getting where I can hardly even afford the food that we used to eat. For ancient Israel, meat was truly costly. It was tr- they couldn't hop down to, as we talked about last week, to the corner market, or to Walmart, or to Harps, or to Allen's or Aldi's, or wherever it is. They couldn't do that. Meat was costly. It was costly to their very livelihood. And for them, the fat. Oh, that sweet fat. That part of the animal was considered a delicacy. It was the very best part of the animal. In fact, in our English Words Using our English words, fat and finest are actually interchangeable in that sense. Because speaking of wheat, for example, the best part of wheat was called the fat part of the wheat. Of course, wheat doesn't have fat like that. But they called, they called that part of the wheat the fat part of the wheat because it was the best part of it. It was the finest part of it. And not only, not only the fat, but also the liver and the kidneys... These things were also given to the Lord. Why? Because they were the choice organs. They were the best to eat. It is, again, offering the best parts to the Lord. Not leftovers. Not the parts that we don't want. But the best parts to the Lord. And we get that, don't we? If we were to have someone over for dinner and, and, you know, it shouldn't really have to be somebody important, but let's just say that we have somebody over for dinner and it's somebody that we admire, somebody we look up to, somebody even that might be a hero to us. And I I grin here because I won't tell you who it was, um, nor will I tell you who they admired. But somebody told me yesterday that somebody in our church really admired somebody else and that person will know who it is. But let's just say you have somebody over to your house that you've always looked at and gone, I want to I want to be like them. I want my family to be like them. I want to I want to be as successful as they are. Maybe, again, they've been a hero for you. You finally get to have them in your home. And what are you going to serve them? You're going to serve them the best that you possibly can, aren't you? Why? Because you want to honor them. You want to honor them. You're going to give them the best cut of whatever it is that you're having. You're going to give them the freshest part. The finest part. Same principle here. What are we giving to the Lord? But there's something interesting. Here's an interesting thought. If I were to have, I'll just use Kyle and Erica down here and their family over. If I were to have Kyle and Erica over to my home and I wanted to give them the best part, wouldn't it make sense for me to know what Kyle and Erica believe to be the best part? That I must know the people to whom I am giving an offering. And I might give them something that I think is the best part, but they don't. What's the principle here? God tells us what the best part is. And we give Him that. We're not free to worship God in any way we want to worship Him. We worship God according to His commands. Now, I think there's more to that than just that, too. I think there's an application among us. Last week, I used an illustration with the children with a donut and a heel. Most of you were here from that. Some of you weren't, but... For those of you that weren't, I was use this illustration that you have a donut and a heel. Which one would you rather want? Of course, you'd want the donut, so you give the donut because it's the best that you had. Well, of course, I knew somebody slash Jenny was going to say something to me about this after the service, and she did. And so did several others. A few people did, and as, as strange as it sounds to me, for some of you, apparently, you prefer the heel over a donut. <laughs> and while I do not get it, it still serves as a great lesson and a great example here. Because we can learn something from this. You know, we do need to know what the one to whom we are offering wants What the one to whom we're offering desires, we don't have the freedom to determine for God what are the choice parts. Again, He defines, He declares what He wants. We worship Him according to His commands. But the application horizontally here is this. Living in covenant community together. What if I were to see Jenny giving a heel as an offering to the Lord when she had the freedom to give either a heel or a donut, what if I see her giving a heel and then I conclude of her, what in the world is Jenny giving a heel for? She can afford a donut. Why didn't she give a donut? You see what I'm getting at? I don't know Jenny's heart. Here I am judging what she's giving to the Lord When I don't have all the information. And it comes down to what? Something one of my seminary professors used to say. Well, I'll say this first. You see for Jenny, while there's freedom there, she would have been giving the best part. She would have been giving that part that was her favorite in recognition to the Lord. She's giving of what she loves. She's giving of what she cherishes. For you see where there's freedom there, the heart of the matter is The matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Who am I to judge what somebody else gives? The Lord knows, but I don't. I don't. But for each of us, we are to give our best to the Lord. We're to give our best to the Lord. Why? Because he's deserving of it. That's why. And when we give our best to the Lord, we are declaring and we are proclaiming that he is worthy of it. But it's not as if he needs it. It's not as if he needs it. It's a humbling thought, isn't it? It's a humbling thought to acknowledge that God doesn't need us. I mean, we want to be needed, don't we? God stands in need of nothing. You know, we often think in our jobs, in our different roles, and even in the church, we often think that we are indispensable. What would the world do without Chris Miller? It's a humbling thought. The world doesn't care about Chris Miller. And God doesn't need him. We think my employer would fail if he or she didn't have me. My team would lose if I weren't on it. And even the church would collapse if I wasn't there. God lacks nothing. He lacks nothing. As I mentioned last week, the Israelites didn't offer food to the Lord as if He is in need of anything. They didn't offer food to the Lord as if He's hungry or in need to be fed by us. Uh, John Curd, one of my old professors, he quotes an uh, ancient Near East archaeologist whose name was L.K. Horwitz. But L.K. Horwitz says, The whole tenor of ancient Israel's belief in Yahweh is irreconcilable with the idea that God is fed by sacrifice, bound up as this is with God's dependence on man. Here, the offering of food and drink reminds me that God is the sole giver of life and nurture. And it is for this reason that their gift to Him takes the form of the necessities of life. It is not us who give to God But it is God who gives to us. And then what? Well, and then we do respond to that which he's given. We do not feed him, but he feeds us. And that leads us to our last division quickly. Food and fellowship. Um, Again, as I stated before, this is a peace offering. It's a fellowship offering. Um, This offering declares... That through the shed blood, there is no longer enmity between God and man. There's no longer this conflict between man and God or God and his people. Where there was enmity, there is now peace. And the, and the blood of these sacrifices, even as we learned, the blood of these sacrifices, I should say, even as we've learned, can't accomplish that. But they only point to the one who does. These things all point to the Lord Jesus. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, and just listen to the language. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I mean, when we read that there in Colossians, it's easy to see, isn't it? It should be. It should be clear to see how this, how this peace offering points us to the Lord Jesus it should be clear to see how it points us to, how it's fulfilled in and how, or by and how it culminates in the Lord Jesus. I mean, the prophet Isaiah tells us that Jesus is the prince of what? Peace. He's the prince of peace. He has brought peace by the shedding of his blood. And while this peace offering, this fellowship offering it's, it's not mentioned in the New Testament, interestingly. Um, and while it's not mentioned in the New Testament, we certainly see some similarities between it and what we celebrate every Sunday morning. Part of me wonders if that's why this isn't mentioned in the New Testament. Because in a very real way, it is. It is. Every Sunday morning, the Lord's Supper. What, what else do we call it? Communion. Communion. There is a sense in which this is, as we come to the Lord's table, that it is a covenant meal that we participate together. A covenant meal. Where we are reminded of, we're, remi- we're reminded of our covenant privileges we're reminded of that which God has done for us. We're also reminded of our covenant responsibilities. And, and in that sense, this is a confirming of the covenant between God and his people. We remember what's been done for us. And in light of that, we remember how we're to live. A confirmation, a reminding us of the covenant That we are in with our God in heaven. And one thing, though, that's important. I'm going to say this twice because it is so important. We must not confuse our covenant responsibilities with what it took to bring us into covenant with him. It is not our responsibility to earn our way into covenant. Does that make sense? So let me say that again. We must not confuse our covenant responsibilities with what it took to bring us into covenant with Him. What did it take? It took His shed blood. Our responsibility flows from that reality, flows from the fact that He has done all things for us. That's our covenant responsibility in light of what God has already done, in light of what it's cost. We don't pay that, the shedding of blood. For the forgiveness of sin. Jesus has paid that. But what does that mean for our responsibility? As members of the covenant people of God. How do we live in response to that which God has done? An easy example to use as we we seek to apply this to everyday life and living. An easy example. How do we respond to what God has done for us? How is it, How do we forgive others? How do we forgive others in light of the fact that God has forgiven us? How do we do that? Do we, do we desire to exact things from others? Oh, I'll forgive them eventually, but they've really got to work it off first. I'm going to make them pay for it first. Is that, how, is that, is that our response as covenant members? Oh, I'll forgive them, but... Not really forgive them because it hurt too much. Do we exact from them a cost? Do we withhold from others that which we have received from the Lord? And think about it. My brother or sister has only sinned against me, another sinful person. When we sin, we sin against the all-holy God. And He forgives us. Do we forgive others even as we have been forgiven? That's one way to apply that. Several others. But that's part of our responsibility, isn't it? But that's our responsibility, again, because of what God's done for us in Christ. And we remember that here at the Lord's table. And and this is going to be this is going to be me fencing the table here because the last few minutes I'm going to talk about the Lord's table. So once I'm done here, I'm going to walk down, I'm going to read, and then I'm going to pray and we'll come to the Lord's table. As we come to the table, remember that it's, it's Him who has given. It's God who's provided the food. We do not bring the food to Him, but He has sent the food to us. Ultimately, the bread of heaven we do not feed him here at the table. He feeds us. We don't bring anything. He's brought everything. And we, need to, and we need to be reminded of this too. Because God has brought everything for us. How do we come? We're to come with thanksgiving. We're to come with joy. We're to come with grateful hearts. Sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder what it would have been like to witness the Old Testament saints sacrifice these animals as weighty and as nasty as that would have been, but then to feast together on that which God had set aside for them. I wonder what it would have been like to witness that. The joy of that fellowship, of that peace. And then I think, and how do we respond? And we're on this side of the cross with blood having been spilt. By the Lord Jesus. How do we come? We come with joy. We come with grateful hearts. And we do not come alone. It is a shared meal. Just like here with the peace offering. It's a shared meal. A a profound and weighty meal as we remember what it took. The giving of Jesus' body and His blood. But a joyful celebration that we have been brought near by that blood. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is a serious and heavy matter, but that doesn't mean that it is rote, doesn't mean that it is boring, it doesn't mean that it is somber. Because when we understand it aright, it's a joyful matter. Of communion with us and the Lord and with His people. You and I and all of us are in communion with one another and with the Lord because His blood has been shed for us. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, I'm not being mean, I am not being rude. But let me put it this way if you do not know the Lord Jesus, you have no part in this table. That's not mean, that's not rude. For you to come, you'd be drinking further judgment on yourself. So please don't do that. We'll read that in just a moment. But if you know the Lord Jesus, you come in joy. You come with peace and you come in thanksgiving. Because why? Because we don't merely anticipate the coming of the Messiah. We don't merely look forward to the coming of the Messiah We are New Testament believers. We do not live in the time of bloody sacrifice pointing toward the reality. We live in light of the reality of the shed blood of Jesus. We live in the fullness of the forgiveness of sins. And brothers and sisters, that is something. That is something to rejoice over. Jesus' blood has been shed. We don't look forward to Christ. We look up to Christ, the risen Savior who has already accomplished that work for you and for me. And we rejoice in it. So brothers and sisters, rejoice this morning as you come to the Lord's table. And don't act like, don't act like you should somehow, how would I put this? Many of you may have noticed this before. Not those of you who go to the side tables, but if you come this way, I'm fist bumping the kids. I'm saying good morning to you, trying to get people to respond and actually commune with a brother in Christ. Because most of the time what we do at the Lord's table, we come and get it and we act as if we're marching toward the death chamber. (laughs) Jesus has died for you and for me. We can come with great joy. We're invited to this table. So when you come, take it with great joy. And if you want to visit with your brother and sister in Christ on your way back to your seat and while you sit there, you go for it. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus because he has accomplished all of that for you and me, for sinners like us. Isn't that something to rejoice over? I know y'all are all Presbyterians, but let's practice this. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Your sin has been forgiven. You've been You've been brought into fellowship with the Almighty God. Let's pray, shall we? Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for that truth and that reality and we rejoice. And yes, this supper, it's weighty and it is serious as we consider what you have done for us. But you have done it for us. So Lord, we rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 11.